Game-based learning plays an essential role in teaching by making students to collaborate, communicate, and work in teams. Strategic games improve the functioning of the brain. Gaming in general can inspire a dynamic which causes learners to build skills and an emotional connection to learning and a subject matter. Dr. Matthew Farber is an assistant professor of technology, innovation, and Pentagonic tip at the University of Northern Colorado. He's also the founder of the Gaming SEL Lab. His research is at the intersection of game-based learning and social and emotional learning. He took some time out of his schedule this week to join myself and my identical twin brother, Keith McShann, to have an engaging discussion about the impact of game-based learning. I'm Kevin McShann. Let's have this conversation. Dr. Farber, it's really nice to be with you uh, this afternoon to learn all about uh, game-based learning. Th- thanks for taking a few minutes, and it's delightful to see you this afternoon. Yes, thank you for having me. Dr. Farber, I'm wondering if we can begin our uh, discussion by you, you simply giving a, a brief uh, explanation as to what uh, game-based learning is. Um. Well, that's a challenging question to have me do it briefly. (laughs) Um, But uh, yeah, so I guess the quickest way I could state this is uh, using the mechanisms of play to drive learning. Uh, Play occurs within the constraints of a game um, compared to, let's say, open-ended play. Um, So game-based learning is sometimes considered new and novel. Um, We hear that a lot. But uh, I was uh, in a dissertation defense this morning, and there was a quote that I asked from John Dewey in 1916 about progressive education and using games and classrooms. Uh, going back even before that, um, King Tut was buried with sets of the board game Senate, uh, which you could still purchase today. Um, and that's about passing into the afterlife, and that's what that game taught. Uh, Snakes and Ladders taught tenets of Jainism. Uh, The original version of Snakes and Ladders had more snakes than ladders, messaging that it's harder to to do good than stray off the path there. Um, So, you know, game-based learning has always been around as long as storytelling has been part of learning. Uh, But today we tend to think of game-based learning often as digital game-based learning with video games. But in my practice, not necessarily, there are a lot of rich board game experiences these days that can teach 
Um, we can we can study games, um, but I think uh, games can be teaching rote content like a gamified quiz, like a Kahoot, which is fine for its purpose of you know being essentially a quiz with music and a timer um, and a competitive aspect. But games could also be, um, I think I like to use Jim G's definition of good game-based learning. And that is where the player has to, um, has to uh, cognate or like metacognate how the designer wants the player to think through a design system. So if I'm playing Assassin's Creed, let's say, and I, I storm the castle or whatever, and I get attacked, after a few tries, I'm gonna realize that's not what, how this game was designed, not with brute force. I'm gonna to need to think of an alternative strategy. And what does this game want me to do to succeed? Because I know the game wants me to succeed. And that to me is a really deep concept of game-based learning. But there are also other flavors of game-based learning. Uh, one is reading a game as if you were reading a text or a multimodal text, especially in a narrative type of game like Life is Strange or Gone Home, What Remains of Edith Finch. Uh, there are all sorts of games that engender connectedness like right now through um, pandemic. Uh, and then there are ways you can build within games like in Fortnite creative, Minecraft creative mode uh, and that sort of learning that goes on. So it's really varied uh, and one would argue powerful. Um, but I would state that the reason to use games in instruction uh, has to do with what Eric Zimmerman calls um, in his manifesto for, um, for this area of uh, uh, being in a ludic century or playful century, is that if the media that we are interacting with is increasingly playful uh, from our smart speakers and smart devices to uh, Peloton, to my Apple Watch, almost everything has some sort of playful interaction. And we need to be literate about how those systems interact and interconnect. Otherwise we are prone to things like um, bias that could be coded into AI. So it's really important to teach with games for that particular reason, I feel, in the 21st century. And in terms of educational benefits, I, I know that not all students learn the same way. So I'm curious if you can expand a little bit on the uh, additional benefits uh, teaching with games uh, provides students. Yeah, good question. So, I mean, at the most basic level, uh, games promote active learning, not passive learning. So I think at the most basic, there's that. Uh, what some games do really well is build in evidence-centered design or stealth assessment, which is what a professor Val Shoot calls it. I was at a session with her, uh, listening to her speak this morning, actually on an online conference. And the stealth assessment happens in the background. So instead of a before pre-test and post-test, it's constant and invisible to the student. And that is really important. Um, her, she has a, a game and tons of papers on um, a physics playground and it measures, uh, you know, the player has to like um, manipulate objects or draw a sketch on the screen and it mimics Newtonian physics. And uh, the game will measure that as you go. 
you know, to get to level two, you have to go through level one, but there's no pre and post test. The game is the test, right? And that's a pretty powerful concept. Yeah, and if you had to uh, sort of gauge some of the drawbacks as to why educators uh, aren't using games in the classroom, what do you think those might be? Um, well, that's a broad question. So I'd like to say that all teachers, whether they know it or not, may be using games in the classroom. Because a lot of, um, or most that I've interacted with, um, like test prep software, which I'm not a huge fan of, but they have gamification built into it. So if we're talking about things like ST Math, IXL, Moby Max, all those systems have some sort of game-like interface where you're unlocking badges and you're, um, you know, there's a leaderboard and that sort of game-like interface is built in there. Um, but I think for a teacher who is unfamiliar with games or, or um, maybe a little uncomfortable, I think some of the ones that are more natural for classrooms, like um, Minecraft, for instance, uh, because it seems to naturally lend itself to project-based learning. Um, you know, a teacher that's not super familiar with Minecraft and their student asks if they can build a project within Minecraft I don't know that too many teachers would say no to that, um, but that's not quite bringing it into the classroom. Uh, I used to be a little bit more critical of superficial gamification and like, you know, again, quiz show style games, but I'm starting to see them more as different entry points to game-based learning because teachers that really get hooked into teaching in that style, whether they realize it or not, their classroom has become more playful and game-like. So it's a net positive, I think. Absolutely, and I know that your research uh, primarily focuses on game-based learning and the social and emotional aspect of learning as well. So I'm curious to know some of the more interesting facts you've uh, come to discover through your research. Sure. Um, well, one recent one, which we have under review, so I won't get super specific, but we looked at a, uh, a large school district, a really large one, and a, uh, a early childhood literacy platform. And we found that there was no change in the control group and the experimental group. And one of the reasons happened to be was that the framework or measurement platform that the entire state recommends and, and then that district does not have a neat alignment to social emotional learning. Um, it's, this is uh, this is an issue in the field itself. There are 117 frameworks for social emotional learning. Uh, a lot of times teachers will gravitate to, towards things like CASEL framework, which is a large one, um, the collaborative for academic, social and emotional learning, but it's not the only one. Um, and that, terminologies change. So like 21st century learning would say collaboration. Others might say teamwork. And, you know, there's a difference between those two. Um, so I think that agreement of language needs to come more into focus. But if you're studying not just social emotional learning, but you're studying things like perspective taking, empathy, 
growth mindset, um, the competencies that undergird social emotional learning in a more granular sense. Uh, there's some really interesting things that have been coming up that have, uh, such as through neuroscience, there's been emerging research showing that these skills are in fact teachable. And uh, Professor, tell me about your work through uh, your youth initiatives and game design, as well as a form of uh, self-expression. Sure. Um, so we find, um, I call it like teaching in creative mode. <laughs> um, but when you, when you create a game, you're creating an interactive system and you're also creating it for somebody else to play or to interact with, right? Uh, it's a little bit different than creating like a slideshow or a video, right? Which is, you are creating it with an audience in mind to, to watch that video, like a TikTok video, for instance, right? You're creating it with a specific audience. Um, that's one type of learning. But when you're creating a game, you're creating um, really a static thing, whether it's code or pawns and game pieces for somebody else to, to interact with, right? Um, and those unique affordances, I think, are interesting. Uh, so I've done some work with Games for Change, which is a, a large nonprofit. Uh, they just actually announced a, um, a project with the United States State Department. Um, it was uh, reported in the Washington Post, I think two days ago or yesterday. Um, so we ran a series of game jams throughout the New York City area uh, where kids were making games on themes of climate change, uh, on themes like um, um, all different types of ones, you know, uh, 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 immigration stories. Uh, and then I also do work with Global Game Jam Next, and that is an international game jam where uh, last year the uh, theme was connection, uh, and that was done remotely, of course. And then um, on campus here, we did a project through a, a funding support from iThrive Games called Game Design Studio. And uh, we had uh, teenagers from the area design games based on their lived experience to see whether or not their stories would manifest within the games that they created. And uh, I think it's just a really powerful um, form of self-expression. I've argued that game design or games themselves are the uh, campfire of the 21st century. Uh, there are, are a lot of big AAA games, you know, but if you look in the app store or in the Apple Arcade, there are a lot of really small games or Itch.io or one of those uh, forums where anybody can make a game. I mean, anybody can go on Scratch right now and create a code a game or take a deck of cards and uh, Sharpies and uh, make a game, right? And I think that's a really powerful way to self-express. Professor, the next set of questions are uh, from my uh, brother, so I'll pass the baton over to Keith. Okay. Thank you. I, lo I love the last part of the new campfire coming from a, a camp background. So I really do uh, appreciate that. Before I get um, into the questions, you had mentioned a little bit earlier about um, growth mindset and game-based learning. Do you feel that growth mindset and, or have you seen that having a growth mindset and game-based learning have been related within the literature? I've shown positive um, results when it comes to um, mindset uh, related to um, game-based learning? Um, that's an interesting question. So, um, you know, it's funny. I, so, I, you know, I have a 
book coming out in the end of May and um, <laughs> book plug, <laughs> gaming SEL. So anyway, we can get it out, but good, thanks. I like it. <laughs> so the, the premise I went in, or one of the, one of the, one of the um, messages I wanted to get across was that having two kids work together on a Chromebook in Minecraft is not enough to consider that teamwork. The game needs to draw you in to promote a sense of perspective taking and teamwork. So an escape room is a better way to develop and cultivate teamwork or playing soccer is a better way to do that. Having kids team up doesn't do that always. And you know, there's this idea that in games you will fail and it's from Jesper Yule uh, in Denmark, and he has a paradox of failure. It's in a book called The Art of Failure from MIT Press. And in The Art of Failure, there's a, the idea is that humans are adverse to failure. We do not want to fail. We are risk adverse. We don't want to get in any situations where we're going to fail, you know? Um, <laughs> from dating to like, you know, just anything in general, stock market, right? Uh, in games, we know we're going to fail often. Yet, the third part of that paradox is that we want to play games, even though we know we're going to fail. Now, part of that has to do with our, our human psychology. Uh, and what that means is that there are two types of media that we consume in our diet. There is hedonic media, like hedonism is where it's from. And that means, you know, uh, what um, scholars call uh, like uh, Desi and Ryan um, about self-determination theory. They refer to that as a pure escapist diversion, right? Like I'm gonna watch the Falcon and the Winter Soldier on Disney Plus for, I'm not going to, I'm not assuming I'm gonna grow as a human from watching that, right? Um, but then I can't just watch that type of programming. I can't just watch Godzilla versus Kong, right? It's fine for what it is, but I also need what's called eudaimonic media. And that is media that is more deep and introspective, promotes awe and those sorts of emotions. Um, so if we play a, a zombie game or watch a horror movie or watch a, a film that is a tragedy, uh, we know that we are, we are not the ones failing. Uh, you know, there, there's not the tragic's not gonna affect us directly, right? But we know we're gonna come out of it the other side stronger. And yes, we will refer to that as catharsis, which is a, a term from theater where our, our brains are like cleared, washed through. Like, you know, we're, we made it, we survived, right? I think that feeling of catharsis and knowing that we will fail, but it's, it's not in a real world consequence is an important aspect to gameplay that is unique to developing growth mindset. The second goes back to another um, philosopher, I guess he was, Bernard Suits. Um, he wrote um, The Grasshopper in 1978, and he spoke about a ludic mindset and also a possibility space. These are words used by game designers, like Tracy Fullerton will talk about this, right? Uh, play-centric approach and possibility space. And that's what games do. They design this like within constraints and then you've got this, this possibility space. And that's in our ludic century here, that does not necessarily mean a game. 
You could be on Twitter and you have a character count. So you have to be playful in how you're going to fit in your expression and your hashtag, right? Um, or TikTok, there's a lot of um, constraints there. It's a game full um, social media application. So to have a ludic mindset means to go into it having a playful mindset. And I would argue that to develop a growth mindset, you will also need a ludic mindset. You need to feel playful. You know, when you're writing, you want to play around with words. If you're editing a video or a podcast, you're playing around with that. And you need to go into that with a ludic mindset. No, no, I appreciate it. I have, you had a lot of interesting points there and it just had me thinking. In games, we can fail. And you talked about self-determination theory a little bit um, earlier. Do you feel with game-based learning, the ability to fail is, and retry is what brings people in? And is the educational system maybe now set up where you try, you fail, or you take a test, let's say, mm -hmm. and you fail, but you don't get another try at the test? Could game-based learning help get more? I guess my question is, could game-based learning help kids want to stay education like engage with educational material if they're able to try fail try again and be more intrinsically motivated as you kind of mentioned with self-determination theory yeah i say the short answer to that is yes uh when i was teaching middle school and still i, I do this now uh if students want to redo work they can redo work and i'll take the high score there's like this funny math i don't know how it's like passed down like hazing or something and grading where like I asked my students, like if you fail a test and you retake it, what does the teacher do? And they're like, what do they do? They average they, the two grades, right? Yeah. What is what is that? If you take if you take like a really high state test, like the SATs or GREs, they don't average the two scores. Even they take the highest of the two scores. So why would we do this in like seventh grade algebra? You know, so I would always let students retake work. I remember I had students um, take brain pop quizzes as flipped learning. That was a 10 point quiz. And one late in the year, one student said to me, you know, um, I don't know if you know, but we've been like retaking these and just writing down the correct answers as we go until we get the highest score. So I was like, so you watch the video over and over and you retook the assessment five times until you got a 10. They're like, yeah, we got one over on you. I'm like, no, you just learned the material, <laughs> you know? And you know, that's what it is. It's grading for mastery. Um, I like to think about Super Mario Kart, you know, right? And in Super Mario Kart, there's those question blocks. And when you hit a question block, it's not random. It's never random. Uh, if you are in 10th or 11th place, you will get a bullet or a star, which will move you right up to like fourth place, not all the way to the top, but like to fourth place, right? If you have, if you're in first or second place, you're probably going to get some ink on your windshield. Uh, when you hit a question block, you're going to get a coin or a banana, which is effectively useless. And I think that's what school needs to do better is to be like that adaptive question block. Uh, it seems random, but it's not. It's keeping everybody within their flow channel. So everybody has that feeling of confidence uh, so it's not too easy or too difficult. 
Yeah, no, I like that last part that you said about confidence in the and bringing the three psychological needs a little bit there from self-determination theory. So I just want to finish with a question. If educators, either administrators or teachers are like, they watch this and like, yes, I want to do it, but I don't know where to start. And I'm worried that it's going to take, I can't have them take a test 10, 15 times. Like I don't have that kind of time to mark. Like where did, what would you say, where do they start? And how do they come out, overcome maybe some barrier that they have in their head? To mean to have more game-like grading? Yeah, or just, I guess the question is, if I am an educator or an administrator and I go to my teacher, or I'm a teacher, like, I want to start having more game-based learning, but I don't know where to start. Oh, okay. What, what would you say to that? Um, I would say, um, I used to say things like start small, you know. Um, I would say there's no, there's not, there's not a wrong way to begin game-based learning. To me, um, there are critics out there like, you know, Classroom Jeopardy and Monopoly, that's not game-based learning. But I mean, those are games, right? <laughs> um, any, I think anything playful is game-based learning, like um, an improv game, like uh, Yes And. I, I mean, start there. Um, board games are really good, but I, I would say that uh, a couple of interesting models uh, work. Like I, I taught social studies. So I taught at the time when iCivic started and that's used in about 50% of all classrooms and they have a suite of really interesting games and it just worked out. And I was like, and that caught, that hooked me into it. But, you know, that's not in every content area. And what I've noticed is some teachers are pairing games with traditional materials. So one, one aspect, one model of two, I'll suggest. One is uh, using a game as a pair text. So in English language arts or history class, have students play a game on the board projected for the entire class to see for like 10, 20 minutes. You know, if it's a game about World War II, have them play Valiant Hearts on the board. Or if it's a game about... Um, Migrant themes. There are a lot of different immigration games like that. And you play the game like a documentary film. So if, if you think if you, if you play 10 minutes of a YouTube clip of a video, try that with a game. And what that does is it brings meaning to the text. It's more like a field trip. Um, I think it's more intimidating to think that you have to take all the kids to a computer lab and have them all stare at a screen. I don't think that's necessarily the best model for game-based learning. Uh, we call this sometimes the hot seat approach. So, you know, you can bring, if you have a Nintendo Switch, you can bring that in, it plugs right into the HDMI cable, and then one kid gets the uh, controller. There are a lot of independent games on there. And um, I think that's a really good model. Uh, a colleague of mine, Zach Hartsman, has a website, Halison Games, and he has a bunch of lesson plans to do that on his site free, Halison Games. Uh, and another model to use, which is what I use teaching middle school, is station rotation. So when I was teaching about the Columbian Exchange, there's a brain pop station on that. There's a video and a quiz and an activity. There was a PBS uh, learning media where you have a, a video and a prompt, which really, I mean, that maps exactly to what like the AP test would have. But the third station was the board game Pandemic. And after playing Pandemic, students understood global interconnections. They understood how 
smallpox came across when uh, Europeans came to, uh, you know, to the Aztecs and to the Mayans, right? They, they understood it because they experienced it through the mechanics of the game. And that wasn't me getting five sets of pandemic and spending two hours playing it. Well, this has been a really great chat that we've had today and I could go on forever because I, I love this stuff. And you started bringing some of the stuff that we do in my lab of mastery and tasks. So it just, it gets me fired up. But uh, for those that maybe want to, if they ever want to get in touch with you or want to get resources that you may have, how can people listening to this get in touch with you? Oh, for sure. So my website is uh, matthewfarber.com. Everything is there. I'm also on Twitter at Matthew Farber. Fantastic, Professor. I want to uh, take a few seconds to thank you for joining my brother and I to have an in-depth and meaningful discuss discussion about game-based learning your time and expertise are most appreciated. Thanks so much uh, for joining us this afternoon. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This was great.